The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi. I'm extremely excited to welcome certified Canadian counselor, Jennifer Marchand. She is an EMDRIA approved consultant, a registered Canadian art therapist, and a trauma center trauma-sensitive yoga facilitator. Over the past 10 years, she's worked in a diverse range of settings and cultural contexts as a clinician, consultant, and trainer. In addition to her clinical work, she's worked as a trauma trainer in conflict-affected countries such as Iraq and Afghanistan on the implementation of trauma-sensitive health care for survivors of gender-based violence. She also established a practice and Hanoi, Vietnam, working with a diverse client base, including expatriates and Vietnamese clients, and was the clinical supervisor for a Vietnamese organization working with survivors of human trafficking. She began her career in Northern Canada, working with Indigenous and non-Indigenous individuals, families, and communities affected by complex and intergenerational trauma. She received close mentorship and training on her indigenous psychotherapy and traditional healing practices, and these teachings continue to shape her approach to trauma recovery and cross-cultural practices, especially when working in non-Western and indigenous context. Thank you so much for being here, Jennifer, so much for us to talk about today. I know. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Ah, uh, I'm, I, when I, um, learned about all of the things that you do, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited <laughs> to talk with you. Um, how did you get involved in kind of working outside your country of origin, um, addressing trauma? Cause you've worked in a variety of places, Hmm. How did it happen? You know, I, I would say it all started when I was doing my undergrad degree, which my first degree was a bachelor's in fine arts. Mm -hmm. And I decided to do a foreign exchange program to Ghana. So I spent about six months studying sub-Saharan African art history. Wow. And dance and drumming in Ghana. Um, at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology College of Art. Very It cool. was an incredible experience. And after I was done my exchange, I, I decided to stay on a little bit longer and work at a psychiatric ward in Accra in the, in the capital. And it was such a tense 
political time because they had just elected a new president. Mm. And the new president was in the process of you know, having his inauguration. We can relate to and, that. <laughs> right, right. And wanting to celebrate and set, um, basically to present Accra and present Ghana as a, a very modern, clean country. Um, and, and it is a beautiful country, but um, what that process entailed was clearing the streets of mm. people who were homeless, people with disabilities. Mm. And I was working in the psychiatric ward. And what I was seeing there as a quite a naive young volunteer who just wanted to um, share um, the inherent healing properties of art making with people. <laughs> what I was seeing was people arriving in the back of these white vans drugged and being brought into the psychiatric ward very disoriented and I was like what is going on here and um, fortunately I had some people around me who could help me make sense of what I was witnessing mm -hmm. but it was quite shocking to yeah. me and and I can say that was my first experience where I was really fully outside of myself mm -hmm. I really had to take a step back and observe and listen and try to make sense of what I was seeing in the culture around me to, to listen to what people were explaining someone with, with disabilities um, at that time, they were understood to be someone who had a curse on them. Mm -hmm. And it was a shame to the family and it was a shame to the country. So they were being kept away and oh, wow. yeah, I, I think that really consolidated my, a drive that I already had at that point to just to be a helper mm -hmm. in any way that I could. Yeah. And so from that experience is that, um, did you, that prompted you to go back to graduate school and pursue, yeah. um, mental health? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As an art therapist. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. clearly that took you into other countries as well. So yeah. how kind of, how did, how did that come about? Was it just something from that experience that you knew that you wanted to work in areas that maybe didn't have access to higher yeah. level of care? Well, so after that, yeah, I went into art therapy. So I did my master's at Concordia University. It's the only master's degree in art therapy in Canada. And I was quite fortunate, actually, because I know a lot of people in the field of mental health who, you know, they go through their whole master's program and really trauma is not talked about in an in-depth way, if yeah. it's spoken about at all. Mm -hmm. um, and in the field of art therapy, which is unfortunately not as recognized as it, it should be, um, the program itself really emphasized how the sensorial, kind of kinesthetic, expressive, body-based elements of the creative process um, are, it's really fundamental to trauma resolution, trauma reprocessing. Mm -hmm. There's even those bilateral elements of the art making process. Absolutely. There's so much integration and also that 
um, that psychological distancing when mm -hmm. we externalize, it allows for so much emotional safety mm -hmm. when we integrate art making into the trauma resolution or trauma recovery process. And so there was a lot of orientation towards trauma work mm -hmm. as well as cross-cultural work. And so once I, yeah, once I graduated, even before I graduated, I think I already was very fortunate to land a position in Northern Canada in Smithers, British Columbia. It's kind of like North, Northwest British Columbia, huge province um, in a small indigenous community doing a lot of outreach work and working with um, individuals, families impacted not only by sexual violence, but also intergenerational trauma, mm. substance abuse, sure. oppression. So it's, yeah, I spent about five years there and there was a very high turnover rate of staff there because it's there's just layers upon layers of trauma and a lack of resources. Mm. And yes. it was so interesting to be like this kind of young white girl moving up there and trying to gain the trust of people in the community. And the only thing I had to show for myself was that I bought a house. I bought like this little house. And so I was saying, I'm staying, I'm staying there. Oh, you're from, <laughs> I'm actually not from Montreal, but that's where I was living. Like, oh, you're, you're an urbanite, you know, you're not staying. This is what people do. They come, fresh ideas, all sorts of energy, and they think they're gonna heal us. And then they leave. I'm not mm. leaving, I'm here. So. It, it took a lot of time to build the trust of the people I was working with. And I really was the one who, who learned. I really was the one who also did some deep healing work. Yeah. I was just talking with another therapist and, um, and gosh, he had, he, I forget the term that he used. It was so beautiful, but, you know, he talked about how really, you know, we learn so much from the client, um, about ourselves and it yeah. is such a, a mutual process, the work that we do. Yeah. 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 It's like that, that Jungian concept, like the wounded healer, we can only really go so far. Um, mm -hmm only bring a client so far as we ourselves are able to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really need yeah. to do that, that deep work. We have an exciting opportunity for all TCP listeners, the ability to certify as a Reiki practitioner from wherever you are located. Reiki is a branch of alternative energy healing that incorporates mind, body, and soul health while complementing any medical treatment or spiritual preference. Maybe you want to diversify your services to your clients or provide extra restorative and healing energy for your coworkers, family, friends, or yourself. Florida Art Therapy Services provides Reiki Level 1, 2, and 3 certification classes and a Master Reiki Teacher course. TCP listeners are being gifted a 15% discount on one course of their choice. So please visit www.floridaarttherapyservices.com to check out the offerings and apply the discount code creative one at checkout. That's creative plus the number one. All links and information can be found in the show notes. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I, I got, 
so passionate once I started learning about trauma, especially in my master's about you know, trauma-informed care. What does, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Like these four hours of trauma-informed care and especially the first one being realized, you know, to realize that trauma is so pervasive. That was such an important lesson for me to learn, you know, before it's like, like how a lot of clients respond to that word trauma, like, oh, what I experience is not trauma. Mm-hmm. And they have full right to say that, of course. Um but it's like, how is how has trauma been traditionally defined? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has been very narrow. I'm so happy that more voices are entering the discourse and diversifying what we understand trauma to be. Um, but when I was growing up, I didn't, I thought trauma was, you know, a word reserved for war veterans. Of course. Mm-hmm. And once I started learning those concepts, oh, trauma, trauma is pervasive. You know, we're all kind of touched by trauma to a more or less degree and normalizing it to a certain extent that, yeah, we, we experience adversity in our lives. Mm-hmm. And the more I learned about trauma, the more I was able to kind of connect the dots of some of the experiences I've had or we've had in our family and to make sense of things in a very normalizing, non-shaming way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think just, just being a trauma therapist really helps me do my healing work. Mm -hmm. I think the really cool thing about, um, diving deep into the literature about trauma and a lot of the, the newer research about trauma that's coming out is really being able to break it down into a physiological phenomena and to say that, you know, this is not something that somebody is making up in their mind. This, there's a clear aspect of our human biology that is at play here that is causing the responses that people have. Um, and I yeah. feel like that is very helpful because it helps to normalize the experience and to say like, Hey, this is, this is something that we all experience to some degree. Um, yeah. you know, different there's differences of course, but, Absolutely, um, yeah. it's, it's not uh, made up <laughs> for sure. Yes, it's definitely not made up. Yeah. And I, I think it there's something about that that really connects us when we see the body and our, you know, our system, our nervous system mm-hmm. um, is what's so impacted by trauma when we look at it through that lens, because we all have bodies we all have nervous systems, right? And in fact, our nervous systems are designed to, to be connected. Mm -hmm. It connects us all. Right. Really the common denominator. Mm -hmm. Our attachment process is Mm -hmm. our our nervous systems, uh, you know, connecting uh, through through that space, but there's definitely an energetic connection. Yeah. um, Continually. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. Always being shaped and reshaped by the nervous systems around us. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, also helpful when we're working in communities that have experienced collective trauma. Mm, 
and you, collective healing. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit as to if you are working in, um, in, in a community that has experienced collective trauma or in response to, um, you know, a community-based event, um, how do you talk about it so that they can digest it and understand? Cause sometimes I feel like in our world, like we get so comfortable talking about things that other people have no idea the words that we're using to explain the, the phenomena that we're observing them describe. Um, so that when we explain it to them, sometimes they end up more confused. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. Yeah. I, you know, I have to wrap my head around that question because it's really interesting because I'm left kind of wondering, do I, have to use the words mm-hmm. do I have to use the words to describe someone's um, healing process mm-hmm. to them so let me give you an example I'll, I'll, it's kind of a half-baked thought there but um, so when when I was living in in northwest British Columbia um, I was trained by Shirley Turk and she's the developer of um, Indigenous Focusing Oriented Therapy. Mm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Focusing Oriented Therapy. Somehow it's not really, people aren't talking about it as one of these um, somatic kind of body-based psychotherapies that are out there these days. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the developer of Focusing Oriented Therapy, his name was Eugene Gendlin, and he actually coined the term felt sense. So that's something that many of us incorporate into our work this the felt yeah. sense, the wisdom of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's focusing oriented therapy. And then Shirley Turcott, who's indigenous, she's Métis. Um, she took that, that approach, that modality, that's very body-based and she integrated um, indigenous healing practices into it Mm, okay um oh uh one moment this is my son coming in no problem let's see we'll do a little pause we'll edit it out he's asking me for he's asking me for a sim number and you have to bring it over because i can't tell you unless i can see the numbers Six two five, six two five six. Like this. Bye. Can you close the door, sweetie? Thank you. How old is your son? He's thirteen. Excellent. He's in the middle of a riveting audio book, and he was like, "Your phone ran out of battery. I need to know what's going to happen." Oh, that's so cute. I know. I know. I know. So let's see where, where was I? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about Shirley Turcott. Shirley Turcott. Yeah. T-U-R-C-O-T-T-E. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I did, it was about a, a one year long certificate program with her 
in body-based psychotherapy through an Indigenous lens in order to work with complex trauma and dissociation. Right. It was a very profound healing journey. And there were a lot of elders in the group, a lot of elders who are themselves helpers in the community mm -hmm. um, and who have also been through residential school which is, you know, a form of genocide in our Canadian history. It's not that far back. Um, and so a lot of the demos that we were doing and practicing using some of these methods um, that we, as a, as a community, as a group, would witness each other's healing. Mm -hmm. And so we were part of witnessing the healing journey of some of the elders in the community who had been through residential schooling. Um, it was very, very powerful. So what, if I could give you some examples of some of the indigenous worldviews or practices. So for one, um, that everything is interconnected. Mm -hmm. There's not really the individual in psychotherapy. There's always the we. Mm, I love that. And those are very beautiful messages when we're talking about attachment trauma. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about children who are raised without uh, an attuned, present, healthy primary caretaker, mm -hmm. which was for a generation or two often the case in, in Indigenous communities in Canada because of the impacts of the residential school system. Mm -hmm because mm -hmm. the level of trauma was so high. But those, those lessons, those teachings of, we are never alone, we are always connected, always interconnected, including to the helpers from the environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That even when, when there's not that primary caregiver available, there are still opportunities to grow and to be connected and to have a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. So it's, there were some teachings that were so powerful to, to really feel this, wow, I'm, there, I really had powerful shifts in worldview. Like I, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really connecting to the earth beneath my feet, really connecting to the natural resources in my environment, feeling the wind, hearing the birds at moments where I was doing healing work was yeah, there, there's my helpers or the sense of, um, of nature of the elements being there to hold my pain, to transform my pain, to wash it away. Mm. Nature becomes part of the healing process in an integral way. So that was part of what I was learning in that course and what I was able to incorporate into my practice with my clients um, and also to learn back from them. Mm -hmm. um, and okay, now I'm, I'm getting closer to answering your question. So I realized only recently, maybe even only last year, that a lot of what I learned in that, in that course or in that program was parts work. Ah, 
But mm -hmm. I didn't know it was parts work because there were no fancy words used. You know, this is not mm -hmm. a, 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 it wasn't a training program where we sit down with paper and pens and there's PowerPoint presentations. This was so body-based, so experiential. Mm -hmm. So for example, when we learned about parts, when we learn, learned about um, fragments of self that hold different parts of trauma experiences, mm -hmm. when we learned about that, we did it in our bodies. We did it through, say, a group of six people coming together in the middle of the circle and role-playing different parts of self and reorganizing different parts of self based on the external environment. Mm, okay. So, so there was a little one, bit of psychodrama type methods it is going. Like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And so there wasn't the words mm -hmm. in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, the experience it's, it's, spoke for itself. The experience spoke for itself. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I must admit, it did it did help me to kind of consolidate some of my learning when I started to to learn more about parts work and IFS and structural dissociation, um, to to take that new learning and to link it up with those experiences there from that program. Mm -hmm. um, which is what happens when we learn anyway, we're always connecting the dots and, you know, the layers integration deeper. It's all that integration work. Um, but I didn't feel that the, the words were necessary. The learning was so deep and so rich. Um, mm. Yeah. And, you know, I also had a really interesting experience when I was in Vietnam and I was working with uh, Cho, who is one of my personal heroes. She's the, um, She's the clinical director of a team of psychologists in Hanoi, working mm -hmm. with survivors of human trafficking. Okay. And she does incredible work. And <laughs> so I was, I was brought onto the team to work with the, the psychology team. And they wanted to learn from me about trauma-informed care and all of these wonderful things. And I kind of, came to this part, I don't know, in my spiel, in, in some of the materials that I was preparing and developing for the team that was about mindfulness, the power of mindfulness, the ability to notice, the ability to be in that state of a dual attention, mm -hmm. the ability to stay grounded in the present and just notice what comes up and how that helps us to integrate. And, you know, I had all these beautiful things kind of prepared for this presentation. And then there I was standing in front of this team of Vietnamese psychologists using language to what felt like in this odd way, like hand their culture back to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like Cho is a yogi. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, wait, what am I doing? Um, you know, I wanted to talk about mindfulness today, but can you tell me about mindfulness? Mm. <laughs> what, what is it to you? Tell me about how you integrate your body 
into your practices with your clients and then we'll see where we meet somewhere in the middle you know where mm -hmm. so I don't know about bringing my language into healing context like I really try to be a listener as much as possible and sometimes that that listening is really a nonverbal listening um, and really believing that culture heals that when we are connected to our culture, um, that is, that's healing. And so whatever cultural practices um, are supportive, comforting, strengthening, give resilience, uh, give a sense of connection, you know, that interconnectedness, that's resilience. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just to support that as much as possible and to hear, well, what, what do you need? What, what is helpful here? Sometimes in, in Vietnam, I was working with the team, supporting them and helping survivors of human trafficking um, go to pagodas to spend time with monks mm. and have that be part of their recovery, especially if they're shunned by the community because of the shame of human trafficking. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So much shame. Mm -hmm. So much shame. So much shame. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which again goes back to this, you know, those four hours of trauma-informed care and this, this first hour of, of realize to really realize that trauma is like, like in, in Buddhist teachings around suffering is suffering as a part of life and trauma is something that um, has really touched us all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, yeah, all that shame around the things that happen to us, things that happen to people in their lives. Um, I really, that's one of my personal goals is to create resources and um, to always be leaning into practices that help people separate their sense of who they are, separate their identity from the things that have happened to them. Right, right. That's just something that occurred in one's experience, but yeah, it's not a, a definition of who they are as an individual. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Mm -hmm. At so least important. to let go, be able to let go of that, that shame, the sting of stigma and mm -hmm. shame to, to not carry that and to not be forced to carry that by the people around you. Right. Right. not always have that being put on you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I'm always surprised when I, when I learn, you know, about a response that somebody wants to take, um, in regards to issuing a consequence to something that they don't like that somebody else did or whatever. And it, and it reminds me of the scarlet letter and yes, I, I suppose I am talking in very vague terms, but I feel like that comes up more often than it should. Like what, why, what is it about our, about humanity that, that feels compelled to go in that direction in, mm -hmm. in many ways? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's probably, you know, more of a, um, a higher level question that we have time to address today, but it is something that I think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could maybe frame it as a, as some kind of protective 
defense in some way, like not mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in as much as shame is unhelpful to those that are experiencing it, yeah. the person um, doing the shaming is experiencing some uh, protection and help from that action. Yeah. Well, there could be that adaptive intent. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just kind of thinking to put that in the context of um, indigenous teachings and worldview that everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we shame someone else, we shame ourselves. When someone experiences shame, when someone experiences suffering, that's a part of us too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can be a part of the healing from that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a very individualistic thing to kind of go, okay, that's that's you and that's not me. That's yours, that's all yours. And I've, that hasn't touched me before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. And um, I think obviously there is that that separation of like, the individualistic culture, um, from definitely my origin, right. Um, growing up in the United States and, you know, it's very individual focused there, there, there are, there, there is emphasis on community and things like that too, but much different than in indigenous culture and Mm -hmm. kind of that, that framework. So, my perspective and questioning is definitely coming from that lens of observation um, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm just thinking about, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but, you know, I suppose um, building off of talking about trauma-informed care and like these four hours I also really appreciate this was so helpful for me when I first started to learn about trauma-informed care, like these three E's of trauma, that when we talk about trauma, it's such a huge word. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk about it, just say trauma is a wound, you know, the original meaning of trauma, but we can be talking about many different things when we say trauma. We can be talking about Mm -hmm. the event we can be talking talking about the experience. We can be talking about the effects or the long-term impacts, symptoms, or even the, the relational issues that could come from, from trauma. So it's to break down that huge word mm-hmm. into those three elements of the event, the experience, the subjective experience, that bodily experience, mm-hmm. and then the effects or the impacts. And when we talk about the nervous system, um, you know, there's, it's like, I, I'm of two minds. Sometimes I think, oh, we, we've got to be careful not to go to that individualistic level. Mm. That it's, you know, trauma is within you and to separate, we never want to separate trauma from the context because it is something that happens to us. So it's something that comes from our reality. It comes from our environment. So we never want to separate it from the environment. 
And so I sometimes feel like, oh, I want to keep, you know, that individual experience in the context of the event mm-hmm. or even that socio-political context. Mm-hmm. And then when I think about that individual level being the nervous system, it helps to bring it back to the context because our nervous system is so shaped by our environments and it's always responding to our environment. So I, Mm. yeah, I think, I think that helps that, that, that individual level. I don't like talking about that level so much when, when it's so, you know, when we talk about symptoms, when we talk Mm -hmm. about these psychological, the, you know, who meets criteria for PTSD. But when we talk about the nervous system, the whole body response, mm-hmm. then I think it does come back to the environment because it's so connected. Mm, okay. Beautifully put. There, you, you can't separate it because we are part of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right there. It's that like interwoven process, um, the back and forth. Of yeah, switching the yeah. perspective, um, the interplay. Yeah, when we keep the body that individual individual level, when we keep that body based, mm-hmm. when we use the nervous system to understand the individual experience and effects of trauma, mm-hmm. then I think it it stays connected to the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. And I, and I think that that's very helpful in um, helping people to understand if like, how do we explain um, what it is that we're doing and how we're understanding what we're asking them to do and, um, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that, um, that you were saying earlier that really stuck in my mind and I wrote it down and. Um, and it was about this idea of nature becoming one's healer. And, mm. um, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you interweave working with nature into the, the clinical work that you do, how they mm. go together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the journey I'm on, really. That's my goal is to to keep them interwoven. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm trained in EMDR. Mm-hmm. And that's I'm extremely passionate about EMDR. I just love it. I think it's yeah, it's it's my favorite, you know, tool in my toolbox, so to speak, as a therapist. And I don't know if it's my favorite tool. I like I like all my tools, but I I think EMDR and like those the phases, the structure of EMDR kind of feels like my backbone. Mm-hmm. Like I've internalized that as my backbone. And all the other modalities and approaches and things that I bring in kind of slide or fit into that structure. That's how it's all organized through the framework of EMDR. So um I was trained in EMDR pretty much within a year after moving to Northwest British Columbia because I just felt like I need 
I need to know what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. I the the level of trauma was very profound. And I knew that many people had left the same position that I was in beforehand. And I really wanted to keep my promise to the community. I really wanted to stay. Um, so I was asking my supervisor, you know, invest in me. Can you invest in me? Give, help me have the tools, help me to gain, acquire the tools that I need to, to really help people. Um, so I got trained in EMDR and very soon after that was also trained in the indigenous focusing oriented therapy. And I almost felt that they were like these two separate worlds Mm. where the IFOT training was, I said that wrong. I, I fought anyway, (laughs) where that training was, um, that's the one that I could use. That's the one that I could integrate into my practice with, with my clients. Mm-hmm. And the EMDR was kind of like something else. Like, what, what do I do with that? It felt very clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt almost like somehow harsh. Mm. I'm not sure how to, how to describe it. Like it. Like something that I do to someone. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It doesn't feel like that now to me, mm-hmm. but at first it, I was like that, really not sure how to use it. Is that because it's so procedural in nature and to a degree? Yeah, I think so. I, I really wasn't used to that because, you know, I'm an art therapist, which now I can, I can really through my, you know, my own journey as a, as a clinician, um, I really see how they fit together very well, you know, both being very process oriented, being essentially nonverbal in nature. Um, and there is so much respect for the inner world of the client mm. to follow their process. But at first, I didn't see that with yeah. EMDR because all I saw was these scripts. I hadn't internalized them at all. And I was like, oh, I'm going to ask you to do this thing. And yeah, I really felt somehow it was like not invasive. I can't quite find the right word for it, but um, I was doing something to them mm-hmm. and I didn't have the words to, I guess that goes back to to your original question. How do we describe what we're doing to our clients in a way that makes sense to them and feels feels normalizing and, and mm-hmm. comforting? Mm-hmm um, feels resonant. I didn't have the words for EMDR. I didn't know how to explain it to my clients. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also felt, yeah, it's like the culture heal heals. Like I I felt like I was removing them from their culture because instead of leaning into their cultural practices, I was kind of taking them out of it and like, okay, let's just try this thing for a second. And then we can go back to doing that other thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just wasn't able to integrate them at first. And then the more I brought in metaphors that were nature-based, um, visual metaphors that were nature-based, um, re- really just using land-based, nature-based um 
resources as much as possible, the more I felt I was able to integrate EMDR and um, nature, EMDR and and the worldview of of my clients at that time, and and to to do so in a way where it's like this is this doesn't mean you're damaged. It doesn't mean that I'm you know, diagnosing you with something. This is your healing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just supporting your healing process. And it's you who has this, this capacity, this, um, this system inherent within you. We all, we all lean towards healing or move towards healing when, when we're in the right context, when we're in the, the right environment. That's mm-hmm. what our body wants to do. Our brain wants to do. We move towards adaptive resolution. Um, so I'm just going to help you do that. Mm. Yeah, it all started to come together and bringing in um, nature in, as part of cognitive interweaves, mm-hmm. bringing in medicines, bringing in plants. Is there a plant that could help you with that? Mm. Okay. Is there an animal that could help you with that? You know, what's the need there? What does it say? Um, Who does this belong to? Is this all yours? You know, a deep despair. Is that all yours? That's such a great question. Yeah, that comes directly from um, Shirley Turcotte and Indigenous Focusing Oriented Therapy. Mm. Yeah, so I was, I, I just started slowly bringing them together. And then it became very powerful. Very cool. Very cool. So when you're, uh, and I think this has been helpful for for me to understand, because I think maybe I was thinking that somehow the work was happening in nature or nature was like as part of the facilitator. Um, Mm -hmm. But it sounds like it is, but through the metaphor and the visualization of nature. Am I understanding? Yep, exactly. So here, here's a more practical example would be the container. Like, of course, we all know container when we practice EMDR and in, in other um, fields or people who practice other modalities, like the concept of containment is obviously big one. Yeah, it's a big one. It's a helpful one. Um, But I mean, some of the examples that I was reading, like, you know, we give options or kind of a menu of examples of containers to our clients sometimes, like Tupperware boxes. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense when that's a part of your life and that you know, you kind of have that felt sense for what it feels like to close something with a Tupperware box and you feel that click and it, you know, you have a reference point, an internal reference point for that. Um, what about when we have an internal reference point for the ground holding pain for us, for the ground being able to attend to and hold our pain and even transform it? Mm-hmm to care for us or what about a tree or what about a body of water 
So to use nature itself as a way to contain what we want to put down, what we can't, we don't want to carry, mm -hmm. or it's not helpful for us to carry. Well, certainly not all the time. We want to put it down and pick it back up when when we can give it our full attention, when when we can do that healing work, but we don't want to carry it around all the time, every second of the day. So where do we put it down? What can hold it for us? Mm -hmm. And nature is a beautiful way to, to contain to and to really feel that. Mm -hmm. Can this rock take care of this for you? What do you need? Well, the wind, okay. The wind can hold it for you. Can you get it back from the wind when, when we want to do the work? Yeah, for sure. The wind will bring it back. That, that trust that nature is always there for us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love, I love the, um, the thoughts about each different unique element and, you know, it, for some, it might be the body of water. For others, it might be a tree or the ground. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many options from which to derive that connectedness. And I'm sure yeah. it, uh, it changes based on the environment which we grow up in. I would yeah. imagine, mm -hmm. you know, what, what people find as um, containing if you live in the Sahara is going to be extremely yes. different than if you live in someplace like Vermont. Um, yes. <laughs> right. Just that, that our own exposure and relationship with the environment would yeah. determine that. So it would help to know where our clients are from. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I spent some time working in, in Iraq and Kurdistan. Um, that was part of my last job. So um, I think you mentioned I'm, I'm currently based in Germany. And I spent about the last two years, I'm still working for them more externally, but um, I was working for them quite intensely. Um, this organization here in Germany called Medica Mondiella. And my primary role with them was to work with health professionals in conflict affected countries, including Kurdistan, mm. um, on how to implement trauma-informed care or trauma-sensitive health services when working with survivors of war rape, for example, or gender-based violence. Um, and also to, to work with them because they themselves are, of course, living in the same environment as, yeah. as their patients, mm -hmm. living in the same environment where you know, ISIS was present. Sure. So there's, there's not that ability necessarily to do that othering. That's yours and that's not mine. So oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, that ability to discriminate um, is, is very, very difficult when yeah. we're experiencing the same external influences and yeah. occurrences. I think everybody yeah. can relate to that currently. Everybody who's providing services to some degree, I mean, we're all affected around the world by what's happening with covid yeah. And all of the losses 
that have occurred in response to that. We've all had to shift in some way. And the therapists out there, the, the yes. nurses, the doctors, um, emergency responders, all of these people that are being responsive to caring for other people, they're all having to tend to their own loss simultaneously. Yes. Right. And I, I feel yes. like that's what you're speaking to, but obviously it, at this really intense level, because these folks are living in constant uh, turmoil, warring activities, uh, explosives, what have yeah. you. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and kind of makes me think of what we were talking about earlier, like, what is the adaptive function? What's the protection that we get when we other, other people's trauma kind of throw it back at them with this shame, you know, it's, this is all yours. Um, and sometimes that does happen in a, in a healthcare context. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like uh, <clears throat> stigma mm -hmm. of some of the patients and what they experience. I mean, not obviously not all healthcare professionals, but you know, um, and that's not possible in that context because some of the doctors I'm working with, um, their, their patient may have the exact same experience as their sister mm. or the same experience as their mother mm -hmm. or even their own experience. Sure. So we don't other it's, and at the same time that that level of exposure that, you know, your story touches something in my story in a very raw way mm -hmm. can leave us very vulnerable to yeah, experiencing yeah. the effects of, I don't even know if we can call it vicarious trauma. Like it's, it's so it's, direct. <laughs> it, it, ma it makes me think about, and this is a very unformed kind of idea in my mind, but you know, earlier when you were talking about the interconnectedness of all of it, and it's kind of like, you know, the space of pain within us that is real, that is activated, um, is it, it feels in connection with that experience of the other person when they're sharing it with us. And yeah, in that way, there is some like, mirroring tethering happening uh between the two yeah yeah and how how do we handle that and that mm -hmm. that's part of the work that i have been doing with with the health professionals is how do we move from from empathy mm -hmm. and this is a bit funny um because we talk about compassion fatigue mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, more studies are showing that co compassion is very protective because it engages that kind of nurturing neurocircuitry in the brain. We can, when we nurture others because we're mammals, that's part of our reward system. It feels good to do that work where when we, we really have empathy fatigue, you know, when we're so in that place of empathy mm -hmm. and we're feeling the pain with mm -hmm. that can be painful <laughs> yeah it can really hurt 
Mm -hmm. um, and we can feel the impacts of that when we're doing that over and over and over all day with different people's stories and we're feeling that pain and our own pain being kind of intertwined, you know, in entangled. Mm -hmm. What's ours, what's theirs? And it's really all of ours. And here we are in this situation together. Where's my protection? What do I lean into? And so that's that's been part of my work too, is figuring out where, where are your resources? What are your healing practices? Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I went there, I was really surprised by the desert. <laughs> That, oh, this is not the healing. It's not like the land that I know how to lean into. I was like, oh, where's, where's, where's the rivers? Where, where's, where's the water? Where's, where's the... the water? <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, for example, some of the, the teas and the medicines that people can grow. Mm. That's part of leaning into the earth and into nature and how they become part of healing rituals. So it's, but yeah, I'd never been in a desert before, really. <laughs> a lot of sand. Not with that lens anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So of course our, our environment shapes, shapes our healing practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are your recommendations for the therapist care of the self, um, especially in these, these times where people are being activated um, mm -hmm. by what is going on in the world um, and so much uncertainty? And um, I think there's a lot of folks that are struggling to cope and perhaps therapist caseloads are heavier, uh, maybe um, more challenging. Uh, maybe they're um, short staffed and they're, you know, working extra hard. Um, what, what can they do? Yeah. What are your recommendations for making sure that we're we're caring for the self so that we don't experience that level yeah. of like empath empathy fit fatigue is what you yeah. described yeah. it as. That's mm -hmm. right. Empathy fatigue. Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is this is something that was touched on. I'd like to see it emphasized more. Um, this is from the work of, um, oh, what did I have to say her name? Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, oh. the trauma stewardship model. I'm not Are familiar. you familiar with that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No. I'm writing. It's very good. That's it's down. basically how we can be trauma stewards in responsible ways, which involves our own self-care practice. How do we stay resilient? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we do our own work as well? Mm -hmm. So part of what she talks about is when we're in the helping professions, or even when we're activists, when we're um, oh, yeah. you know, advocating for a healthy environment, a healthy ecosystem, um, when we're doing any kind of helping or activist work, any kind of stewardship, um, 
it's different from the primary trauma experience because there's an element of choice to it. Like we come into this work, I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but with a certain level of, of choice and intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where the primary experience of trauma is one of powerlessness yes. and choicelessness. Mm-hmm. We don't choose that. Right. And so if we choose to do this work, we can also choose not to do this work Mm. and to allow ourselves to explore those plan B options. Not so that we all quit our jobs, Mm -hmm. but to come out of that feeling of being stuck in continuous chronic exposure that I'm not stuck in the work that I do. I've actually chosen it. Mm -hmm. It's a powerful, it's a powerful mental shift. Yes. When you, when you, it's subtle, but really, really impactful. Yeah. 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 And I think just let your mind go there. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a friend and and previous colleague who really left her work as a therapist, as a trauma therapist and opened a bakery. That sounds wonderful. I know. (laughs) And it sounds more and more wonderful every day, (laughs) you know, and, and I, I dream about that. I think, oh, she opened her bakery. What would I do? And sometimes I bring that into consultation work. What's your plan B option? Mm -hmm. What would you do? Mm-hmm. I hear all sorts of interesting mm-hmm. things. Oh, I'll be a, I'd be a veterinarian. I'd be a librarian. Um, I love to hear what people's plan B options are. I love that. I, I love that idea as part of our self-care practice yes. because it's not something that's typically talked about, but it really, really is helpful yeah. And to say that, you know, if we are getting to that place, we're not going to be effective. Um, it's okay to take a step back and play with plan B yes. and then return exactly. and yeah. then return to the work. I know a number of colleagues that have done that. They left yeah. for a variety of reasons and did other things. And then they returned they came back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like professional pendulation. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Um, yeah. And this idea, something that I, I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I think perhaps maybe it's because I have seen a lot of shame in response to therapists expressing, like, I feel like I need to take time away because I'm feeling overwhelmed because of what's going on politically and, and, and what, you know, just the state of the world has been, it's been stressful. Um, And people have been experiencing a tremendous amount of loss. So I can appreciate and understand why somebody, especially if they're working, doing um, 
heavy work in an agency or a residential center or something where yeah. the, the work is very intense to say, I, I need to take a day off and take a personal day. Um, but I've seen shaming in the therapy community where other mm. therapists shame the therapist for taking time off that they quote unquote, shouldn't be doing that because they need to be available to the client. But it brings me back to that idea of like, our, our clients don't need us to heal. They really yeah. don't. And, and that is an important aspect of our mindset. And I think it very much relates to this idea of plan B. We're choosing to be a source of support, um, but there are so many other people that are choosing that, that this is not our individual responsibility. We are not a soul, we are not solely responsible for somebody else's health and well being. They have yeah. all the things that they need to, to care for themselves and heal themselves and do the, do the work. We're just kind of a guide and a witness. Yeah. Um, but very, very humble, very humbling to hear that. Yeah. We can take our rescue capes off. Yes. Yeah. Yes. To say, Hey, you, you're recognizing and identifying that you need to have some boundaries to take care of you. That's beautiful mm -hmm. and wonderful. And of course you should do it and model that and be the yeah. example so that, that others see like, okay, it's okay for me to do that. I don't have, I don't have to take that responsibility on for yeah. caring for yeah. anybody else. Yeah. And part of that is, you know, the system that you're in, the systems that you're working in, are you supported organizationally mm -hmm. to take that time off? Yeah. So, yeah. There's that kind of systemic part of our own self-care routine that's that's integral um or systems more so i should say and you know so, something else that i'm thinking of i guess it's this you know can we take off our rescue cape i think that that rescue energy that i don't know kind of flying into the scene and rescuing and that rush crisis. of energy that we get that crisis energy like I'm at my best in a crisis and I feel that rescue cape come on. And yeah, I was part of a critical incident response team for a while. And yeah, I could, you know, you get the call and, and you fly into action. And that's, a, it really is that place of action mm -hmm. where there's not that reflective reception necessarily or mm. ability to feel my feet on the ground it's more like this lifting off re rescue energy of act um and that that's a that's a state in our nervous system that really reflects or mirrors um hyperarousal yeah 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 and so i can i can very easily join my clients there I can go there very quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, I'm I'm here with you in this in this state. And 
I have to really watch myself there. I have to watch and observe, self-observe, notice my my nervous system, which state I'm in, mm-hmm. because yeah, I can go there quickly. And I have to bring myself back continually back to this place of being more centered where mm-hmm. I'm in my window of tolerance. I can notice that that adrenaline, I can notice my heart pounding, I can notice, you know, sweaty palms, I can notice that urge to act and just advocate and let's do this thing now. But I don't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, and I model that, wow, I'm feeling all that energy too. Let's take a step back together. Um, And I'm, I'm thinking about how when we take our rescue capes off can we simultaneously feel that the work we're doing is enough Mm -hmm. you know can I can I say that to myself and really believe it Mm. can I say even you know in reflecting on 2020 can I say to myself the work I did was enough the work I'm doing is enough Mm -hmm. my presence the, the work that, that we do is important, you know, even yeah. when it's over telehealth, there was so much of that mm-hmm. at the beginning of COVID. Like, should I charge less for my services mm-hmm. online? Because it's kind of like, it's not real therapy, right? Like I can't do the real deal. So yeah. should I charge less? And no, the work that we're doing is enough. Yeah. And I, I bring that back to polyvagal theory too, where, you know, our, 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 um, that ventral vagus nerve, that social engagement system is our eye, ear, mm-hmm. heart. What else is connected? Voice. Mm-hmm. That's how we experience connection. And that's what co-regulates us. Mm-hmm. That's how we co-regulate each other. And we co-regulate our clients. That's how we offer safety cues is through these nuanced, um, nuanced changes of our expression of uh, the muscles around our eyes, the tone of voice that we use. Um, that's that's how we're connected. And so when I think about telehealth and the way we're typically framed in telehealth, I think it's enough. I think it's it's all. Of course, I'm very body-based in my practice, and I do integrate a lot of body movement mm-hmm. into my work over telehealth. I think that's important. But in terms of what my clients need to see from me, mm-hmm. I think that face, eyes, ears, voice, heart connection is really, it's enough. It's enough. Yeah. And I, I agree with you and, and I, and I feel like what clients are paying for is really not the hour of treatment that, 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 um, we are with them. They are paying for our, our, everything that we've done, learned, practiced up to this point, right? Kind of like when And I, I forgive me because I don't recall which artist um, said this, but 
um, about their work. You're not paying for that painting that you're hanging on the wall. You're painting for all of the years of practice and rehearsal and me refining and developing yeah. my skill and my craft and, and my knowledge mm. so that I could create that painting on the wall. Yeah. And that yeah. if we could internalize that idea as therapists too, I think that would help us with this um, difficult relationship, a difficult emotional relationship that many of us, not all of us, but many of us have with pricing what we do. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it's a long journey to build those skills. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. yeah. It's an investment. Definitely. Yeah. Anyone on their, on their, path towards EMDR certification or any kind of certification or licensure or whatever can speak to that. It is, it's a process and it is an investment time and resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a long, yeah. long, long commitment. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Definitely. Let's talk a little bit. I have a couple of questions I intended on asking, and I think in, in some ways they've been answered, but, um, but there's one that I really want to ask. And that would be as an, as an expressive arts therapist, as a, as a creative arts therapist, what do you believe the advantages are for other creative clinicians to become trained in EMDR and how can that enhance the work that they're doing? To think about that, I mean, how did I benefit? Mm -hmm. I benefited immensely from being able to do something with the memories that are coming up, the memories that are surfacing that want healing, mm. the material, the fragments of experiences that come up through the creative process or reflecting on, on a creative process that a, a client made. Mm. Um, I think art, art itself is very action oriented and there is that process of transformation um, that's kind of inherent within the, the creative process. At the same time, I felt I could help my clients deepen that transformation and increase the, the integration through bilateral stimulation and through the structure of EMDR. And I, I think the structure itself feels very safe feels very safe. I was trained in play therapy mm -hmm. and um, it was child-centered play therapy by Gary Landreth. And there was this saying, freedom within limits, mm -hmm. freedom within structure. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly how I feel the process of EMDR to be, that there's this structure. And because the structure is so clear mm -hmm. 
we're really able to, and, and I feel that's my job. I provide the structure, but within that structure, my client has the freedom to follow their process and go where, where their brain needs to go to find that resolution. Mm. And that's, that's the, that's the free association. Mm -hmm. And I was trained psychodynamically. So that really works for me to, to trust that my client is that what comes up for them is, is important to trust that it's important on a deep level Mm -hmm. and to follow it, to, to let them tell their story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's really a part of art therapy. I know art therapy can sometimes be misrepresented in pop culture, for example, that, and, and this is part of the field too, but it's, it's not how I was trained. Um, the client draws something and then we like psychoanalyze it and read into it. And we ascribe the meaning Mm -hmm. to what the client creates, but that's not really what we do. We, we, no, yeah. Exactly. It's the client's meaning making process that allows for that integration. Mm-hmm. And it allows for for the healing. It, it allows for that for those shifts of um, self-concept to to arise. Are you you do EMDR, right? I don't. I don't I mean, do- are you an EMDR therapist? Oh, okay. I am not. I I have been exposed to it from a number of uh, you know colleagues that I work with, and I've had a couple of supervisees go through the training. Um, But I have okay. I have not done it yet. I've considered it. um, Okay. But I haven't. I haven't formally done the training. I understand. some of how it works and I've seen people mm-hmm. practicing it, um, you know, in, in process, but I'm not, no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it comes I up feel like a that's lot. A very, the way I asked you that was so rude and I'm very sorry. <laughs> oh no, it's okay. I don't <laughs> mind. I don't mind. I'm not, but you know, there's so many different things that we could be trained in that it is a reasonable question. And, um, uh, but it comes up for me a lot as a supervisor, I get the question, well, how would this help me? Is it worth going through the training? Because people know if I go to do this EMDR training, it's not just the training itself, but then there's the follow-up of like the after calls and the, um, the practice clients that I have to do and, you know, mm-hmm. the documentation that they have to submit the, if they buy the, the products, um, like the light oh, yeah. bar or, you know, o- other things, t- tools that people implement and use yeah. to talk about investment. Yeah. It's a huge investment. So I get that question a lot. If I'm going to invest in this, how is it really going to help my practice? How is it going to help me help others? Is it worth uh-huh. it? Yeah. Right. And yeah. how is it going to enhance what I'm doing already? Right? Mm-hmm. Does it make make sense like as a good fit model. And I've seen a number of um, 
play therapists that are doing a really good job at um, figuring out how yeah. to utilize interventions that already come natural in the playroom and pair it up with the EMDR process for um, a child to be yeah. able to benefit from the intervention as well. So it's mm. just a matter of like, how do, how do, how, mm. how do we help other people see the value of like, yes, this it's, it's expensive and it's an investment in time, but, mm -hmm. um, but there are potential advantages. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's my answer is that um, the advantage is there's a structure and structures can provide safety. And I feel in my sessions that there's enough, enough structure and enough safety that I can follow my client. Mm. And I really prefer to follow my client. I'm holding the space, I'm maintaining the structure, but within that, I can follow my client on their journey where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And I'll guide them if we're going into terrain that feels like it's, you know, maybe we don't want to go there right now where there's um, activation or destabilization. We, we come back, we come out of it, we reground, restabilize. So I play that role, but essentially, if my client's not overwhelmed and they're able to be in that mindful state of noticing that dual attention state mm -hmm. um, and they're not stuck, I'm following them. Mm -hmm. And that is, I feel like that's offered, that, that's what I do with art therapy too. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel that, um, I don't feel that I'm able to hold the space as well somehow. I, I love to bring art therapy into the structure of EMDR, not the other way around. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. So um, the EMDR comes first and then the art intervention would become integrated within that structure. That's right. Very intentionally mm -hmm. when it's helpful to the client's process. Mm -hmm. okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like being, being an artist, being an artist, being an art therapist, um, I think has been really fun to come into the, the world, the field of EMDR um, with a different kind of energy, like a freshness. I know from being a well, maybe from being an artist and also from being an extrovert, I need to collaborate. Like that's my favorite thing on earth is to collaborate with people. Mm -hmm. And I have all these projects and little ideas, like some of the resources that I've been developing, for example, and I know I don't want to make them alone. You know, I, mm -hmm. I have these ideas and, you know, something called the comeback tool that I was working on, started working on it about two years ago. And then when when COVID happened and people were moving into telehealth because the comeback tool is very a body oriented um, framework for stabilization. Um, I was like, okay, I wanna bring this tool forward and, and see who, 
who wants to use it and who can I bounce ideas off of and who can help me enhance it and um, I, I started collaborating with a team of beautiful trauma therapists, very international team, um, especially Michelle Simpson, who is a Brazilian mm. uh, Portuguese speaking therapist, EMDR therapist, living, you know, she's a bit like me. Sometimes I feel like we're therapy pirates on international water <laughs> just okay where, where 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 am I now which rules and regulations apply to me now what's happening um so she has lived in in London and the state she kind of goes back and forth between the UK and the states and and also Brazil and yeah she and I really started collaborating in a very fun way with the comeback tool to enhance it together mm -hmm. the, those first few months of COVID and then working with Jean-Vievre LePage as well as um, Fuzia, I wanna say her name, Ben Chekri. I wrote down her name because I wanted to do a call out to, to Fuzia and Jean-Vievre as well as, as Michelle, just such a fabulous, beautiful team to collaborate with and just, you know, resonating with each other and, and building the ideas for the comeback tool, especially how to make it more culturally resonant and relevant and sensitive so that it can be used cross-culturally. It can be used in, in many different contexts because yeah. that's the world, that's the situation we find ourselves in. We're all in this situation globally. And so to have something that we feel like we can quite responsibly bring into our work with people who are of different cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. For, for people that are listening, if you're not familiar um, with the comeback tool, I know you have a video um, explaining the comeback tool and we can put the link for that in the show notes so that um, people can go and, and visit that and learn more information about it for sure. So I'll ask yeah. you to, there's a, there's a video explaining it. There's a whole workbook, a scripted workbook that you can use to facilitate the activities, offer the, the practices to your clients, um, there's the video so that you can watch them and do them as a part of your own self-care. So we really tried to make it um, as helpful as possible, both for clinicians and for their clients. Love that. Love that. So um, in thinking about like how you create your tools, um, do you always approach it from the perspective of collaboration? I get bored if I don't, I think. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I, yeah, I get a lot of energy from other people. And it also feels like just like the right thing to do to find a way to, to organize these thoughts. But um, most of the resources that I develop are with the intention of bringing nature, um, bringing natural metaphors into 
my clinical practice and to be able to share that with other therapists. And that's part, for me, that's part of the decolonization of our field. Mm. That's part of moving away from language that has an imbalance of power mm -hmm. that can be stigmatizing or pathologizing um, language that feels, I want to use language, metaphors, examples that feel, um, feel like they're contributing to the healing process. Mm. I don't want my clients to have to work to figure out what I mean by the things that I say. I want it to just resonate, to right. like land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and to use that, you, to do that using nature, um, I think is what, what can really be a part of the decolonization of our field to make it non-Western and to make it more resonant and useful in non-Western and Indigenous contexts. But I, I want to be part of that discussion as a white person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important that we as white people are part of that process, mm -hmm. but I don't want to be at the forefront. Sure. Yeah. So I like to collaborate to bring other people to the forefront. That makes sense. That's beautiful. Yeah. Very, very intentional about your why of, okay, it goes beyond, I'm just creating this tool to be helpful. There are so many other layers of why that connect with your personal value system. Yeah. Um, that go into that decision-making model. Thank you for, you know, e explaining it like that. I think it's really helpful for other people to learn about that and, and think about those things as they're creating and developing resources for other therapists to use that. Yes, mm -hmm. this is helpful to your client, but <laughs> we can go, we can take it another step further and how you just yeah. kind of explained. So. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I think it's really important that I honor my teachers. Mm -hmm. I honor the lessons that I learned and, and it, they're not from mm -hmm. my culture necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't own these teachings. They were given to me. They were a gift. Yeah. And, and I think there's, you know, in, in the spirit of, of collaboration um, and, and learning, I don't, I don't want to have a, a sense of ownership over, over the material that I create necessarily. I want to use it to bring, bring more voices in. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I'm working with with an indigenous woman who was recently trained in EMDR. And she's looking around and she's saying, where are the other indigenous people trained in EMDR? Where's, where's my people? How do, how do I do this? How do I find, how do I build up the voices of indigenous EMDR practitioners? Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, let's, let's collaborate. And I really hope that she, 
grows and and you know maybe my materials will help her to kind of to get a base for that but I hope she really goes in her own mm -hmm. direction you know I hope to yeah. support her in that and like the Cho I mentioned Cho who I'm working with in in Vietnam I'm still working with her and yeah I I really hope she becomes an EMDR trainer and that her mm. her work in the field of EMDR really contributes it, it expands the field of EMDR and benefits to have a non-western the more non-western perspectives the more diversity of perspectives that yeah. we have in all of our fields the more we all benefit I agree mm -hmm. yeah I I really hear um in how you you're explaining it this uh perspective of you know this is about um, enhancing the interconnectedness of all of us um, yeah. so that as you're creating whatever it is you're creating, um, it, it's about reaching that broader perspective that everyone versus lifting one up and going back to kind of your yeah. earlier discussion of like the collective versus the individual. Um, and I really hear that and how you're talking about the value system of your um, creative process too, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, and maybe that's part of, of the creative process or what it's always been for me even when I was an art student, I, I didn't like to create alone. Mm -hmm. I like to do it in connection with others. Yeah. Yeah. Collaborative art making is awesome. So much fun to so much work, fun. work with others. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I'm just going to keep making and, and see, see where it goes and find different projects to work on. What else am I working on right now? Yeah. Well, I'm sure you have other things in the hopper. I, I cause and all sorts of things. <laughs> that's, that's the thing about being like an entrepreneurial um, kind of creative therapist is there's always another idea of something that we're working on. And, um, you know, if, if you would be, up for coming back. I would love to have you on the show again and talk a little bit more. Um, but I want to be mindful of the time. And I know you had said that um, you have a freebie for listeners if they're interested. Can you mm -hmm. share a little bit about what that is? Yes. So I have an Etsy shop. Mm -hmm. And on my Etsy shop, I sell different resources. Um, these are primarily resources for EMDR therapists, um, but we also have the comeback tool workbook in the Etsy shop if anyone's interested in that. So the freebie is, I think, I think it's 50% off. So just whatever, if, if there's anything in my little Etsy shop that looks interesting or helpful to your practice, um, you'll get 50% off of that. And with the comeback tool, what we do with the proceeds of the comeback tool, Michelle and I 
um, we take the money that we get and we use it to basically um, support other therapists in other cultural contexts, in other languages, to translate the tool into their language and produce the video and audio material. So oh. we're doing that in Vietnamese, we're doing that in Swahili. So all of the money goes into those projects. Okay. So that again, just further talks about what we were just talking about this idea yeah. of like, it goes beyond me. I've created this, yeah. but this is not about me or for me. It's about the collective. And so even in thinking about, okay, I've created this product. Yes, I'm selling it, but how can I use those resources yeah. to continue to make it accessible to as many people as I can? Cause I know that it's going to help them. And that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Michelle and I talked about that a lot. Like how do we develop a socially responsible business model. So there's money coming in from this tool that, you know, I originally developed on my own, reached out for collaboration, especially because she's really a pioneer in the field of telehealth. And so we were like, okay, let's work together and, and build on this. And so it's like, okay, we have money coming in every time that we sell one of the workbooks or some of the videos how do we do it to, to continue the momentum, to continue to build resources mm -hmm. that will help more and more people? Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So That's I'll fun. put the link to um, the coupon code in the, um, uh, in the show notes, because it's a long link. Um, so I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, so, okay. so if anybody wants <laughs> to, um, you know, grab that 50% off, um, to Jennifer's Etsy shop and check out all the resources that she's developed to help therapists, help their clients, um, particularly using an EMDR based model. But I think even for folks that um, maybe aren't trained in EMDR, your comeback tool really um, does a lot of grounding exercises yeah. that um even if you're not practicing EMDR, there are some tangible um, interventions that people can use to help their clients. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's not specific to EMDR. We can put it in the context of EMDR and like the preparation phase, helping increase readiness for reprocessing and to use for stabilization. But it's also just a, a grounding stabilization resourcing tool mm -hmm. really body centered so yeah yeah it's it's not only for emdr therapists we wanted to create something that um, is very accessible and um transferable usable yeah. anyone can use it yeah mm -hmm. i and mm -hmm. i think it i at least from my um when i watched the video like I, I felt like it was very tangible, useful, could be oh, put into action right away. And that's why I was like, we've been talking about EMDR a lot. And I want to make sure people know <laughs> that even if they're not an e EMDR therapist, this resource could be really helpful to them in their practice. Yes. So. Yes. All right. Sorry if I kept hijacking the conversation with the EMDR talk. 
No, no, it's, it's great. It's great. Um, but I really appreciate your time today and thank you so much. Thank you for the invite. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.